Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. The book of Jude is another brief letter, a really short book of the Bible in the New Testament. It is similar to the book of Second Peter, but it is named for the author. It is written by Jude rather than being named for the recipients of the letter. But this brief letter, just 24 short verses of a single chapter, is a sustained repudiation against Christian opponents. It is an intervention And because it contains a lot of quotes from non-canonical Jewish text and what we call extra-biblical literature, my comments here are actually going to be quite lengthy because there would have been a lot of background that the recipients of this letter would have known that we do not necessarily know. The author quotes those as if they are authoritative None of these have made it to the level of Scripture to being part of our canon of the Bible, but the early Christian community may have considered them authoritative or somewhat binding to them, particularly since the New Testament, as we have it, didn't really exist yet. It does, however, show that there are sometimes variations of authority that can be given to writings, and it helps us trace the development of what we have as Scripture. This little brief letter has the highest concentration of nature metaphors of any book in the New Testament. It is an example of early biblical interpretation of Christianity, and it follows a pattern of having a text be quoted and then an interpretation of that text, very much in the same way that some of us who journal and do Bible study by taking notes, we would read the text and make a reference to it and then write our thoughts and all the ways we see it interacting with Scripture, with reason, tradition, and experience, that Wesleyan quadrilateral that we as Methodist Christians use to engage in our task of theology. Faith and understanding clearly evolve and adapt. Um, Jesus, we know, added to Scripture. This is something that makes some of us a little bit uncomfortable when we begin to talk about it, but He does. The great verse of the Jewish people was the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, Deuteronomy 6, 5. When Jesus quotes it in the New Testament, when He says it during His ministry, He adds a dimension, a fourth dimension. All three of the synoptic gospels, the synoptics are the ones that are very similar. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is very different. But the Matthew 22, Luke 10, and Mark 12 all capture Jesus as saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he adds a fourth dimension. So he actually adds to Scripture. But what he's doing is acknowledging that language changes, and I think Jesus is wanting us to see that we love God with all that we have, and that used to be captured for the Jewish people with heart, mind, and soul. Now he needs to add strength. So you do it with your mind, 
with your emotions, with your passions, and with your physical body. There. So we see that kind of development. We also see Jesus bringing a new dimension of interpretation to Scripture because he uses the statement where God says in the Old Testament, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Jesus uses that by saying that's in the present tense. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be alive. They have been resurrected. Jesus uses it as an argument for afterlife. But I believe when God actually said it to those people, he was saying, I'm the God of your ancestors. I'm the God of your family line. I'm the God who has made you a people. So there can be more than one meaning, more than one understanding, but interpretation and understanding of Scripture and scriptural events do evolve and change over time. We are not being unfaithful to Scripture. We are actually following the very example of Jesus Christ. We just need to be very sure that we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us to do so in ways that are actually what God wants us to understand and not not leaning on our own understanding. Jesus also refuses to stone an adulterous woman, which was a violation of Mosaic law. So Jesus breaks the law um, because he has a different interpretation of how that should be seen as far as justice and mercy and grace. Um, Paul uses creation and the order of creation that men were created before um, women, that there was an Adam before there was an Eve, to address marriage relationships and authority within the church. And there are an awful lot of Old Testament prophecies that the original prophets and the Jewish people saw as applying only to the nation of Israel that we as Christians see as applying to Jesus as to the Messiah. So I say all that to say what Jude does here in this letter um, is a continuation of what Jesus did in his ministry, of what Paul did, and what we continue to do as we discern how to understand and apply um, our history of faith captured in Bible to our lives now. And yes, there are limits to that. There are false teachers who come to conclusions that are in error. Um, and so we have to engage in the decision of who decides what is too far and what is too different and what is a wrong interpretation. Um, the name Jude can also be a short version of Judas. We have reason to believe that pe- Judas was a common name, much in the same way we'd have lots of Johns or lots of Mikes. And we believe that in the early Christian church, there were those who quit using their name Judas and began to use Jude to change it in some way, or to use their middle name, even to use a Hellenized or a Greek version of their name in order to separate themselves from the Judas who betrayed Jesus so as to not get confused with them. Um, there are people who do not believe that the Jude we know is the one who wrote this. They say it's because the Greek language is too refined for a Palestinian Jew to have written. This is not the way he would have sounded and would have written letters. Um, this, If he did write it, then it, they believe that this letter looks back further to the apostolic era of which Jude would have been a part of that. Those who believe um, Jude did write the letter 
believe it is a style of biblical interpretation that represents what we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that would be early and Palestinian, and therefore it could have been there. Um, Wesley accepts that Jude is, in fact, the author, just as it states, that it was written late in the life of Jude, and that when the church um, had already begun to experience degeneration, as is predicted in the book of Second Peter, Jude identifies himself as a brother of James and a servant of Jesus Christ. We know that James is a half-brother of Jesus. Um, He's one of the other sons of Mary, um, born to Joseph after Jesus. So that would have made Jude Jesus' brother as well. And interesting that he doesn't appeal to this as, I'm Jesus' brother, let me tell you what you ought to do and what all this means. Instead, he says, I serve Jesus. He wasn't just my brother. He was the Messiah. He is my God. He is divine. So he's a brother of James and a servant of Jesus. Um, This little book is part of what we call the Catholic epistles, meaning they are for everyone. The other letters are written to churches or particular groups of churches. We have letters written to people. Those are the pastoral epistles. And then we have these that are Catholic epistles written to everybody. And those include the book of James, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and 1st and 2nd Peter. So they're not addressed to a specific person or congregation. Um, All right. So we see even in verse 1 here that he is writing to those who are beloved in God and kept safe for Jesus. Um, Some manuscripts say sanctified rather than beloved. Um, And when we say in the Greek language, there is one word for the prepositions that we translate many ways, of, for, by, to, through, all of those. Um, So here in verse 1, the better preposition would be the word by, beloved by God, or who are sanctified by God. Whichever word your translation has, the better preposition would be by rather than in there. Um, In verse 2, he greets whoever reads this and all who read this with mercy, peace, and love. He wants it to be abundant, and it's worth us considering why we might need all three of those things in abundance, because they help us to live the Christian life. In verses 3 and 4, we have the word contend. This word means to strive, to fight, to work at. It was a Greek word from the athletic world, specifically about what happens on a wrestling mat. So in other words, as you wrestle with how to live out your faith, as you wrestle with these issues, um, and he wants you to be strengthened, we get stronger from wrestling over these things, and it is emphatic. It is a form of agonizing. It's difficult. It's exhausting, but it is worthwhile work. And we get a present infinitive form of the Greek. I'm sorry to wade into the Greek a little bit, but a present infinitive form means it is ongoing. The action has started and it continues. It has not yet been finished 
or completed, but it is still happening. He talks about what has been stolen, at least in my translation. So there, there is danger. Um, there are ulterior motives at work. Um, there is a spirit that is opposing God and is using them to pervert the gospel message. And that is a gospel of grace. We see that the enemy often does this, that Satan creates similar things and twists it just a little bit. When we look at satanic stuff, the black mass is a twisting of the Catholic mass. We have an unholy trinity. Even that whole um, visual of an upside-down cross is to take something that is Christian and pervert it, to twist it and make it wrong. The, that's what the enemy does. He gets it almost right. He starts with a little bit of truth and then gives us some error to try to get us off track and away from what we should be doing. There's a clue to what the false teachers are saying here. Um, he, there is licentiousness. There is a throwing off of sexual restraint. There is lewd behavior and immoral character at, at running rampant here. They are not forsaking their sin. When they come to Christ, they're finding some way to claim to be Christian and yet still engage in all their sins. Ooh, that pinches a little bit because we sometimes do that in our culture too. We don't want to abandon our sinful nature. They're having no shame for the sins they're committing. They've hardened their hearts. They're not feeling conviction anymore. Um, they are presenting themselves as a master of their faith or as an expert in faith. We see this um, in chapter, in verse 4, whereas Jude is saying Jesus Christ is our Lord and our master, not you. And you certainly do not seem to have mastered the Christian faith and following Jesus faithfully. The false teachers appear to be claiming revelations that they have received in dreams. We see this in verse 8. And they are using these revelatory dreams to claim authority for themselves and for the content of their dreams to become authoritative for the community. Their position is that grace covers everything. And that idea that grace covers it and we don't have to worry about it is leading to immorality. We see that in verses 10, 18, and 19, to sexual immorality in particular, verse 7, and it's causing divisions within the, the group in verse 19. So instead of living in grateful and faithful obedience, they are using the grace of God as license to remain in, engage in, and do so with no impunity in their sinfulness. They may have even been encouraging others to sin, like trying to get them to engage in these things with them. So they might have also been preying on the members in a predatory way with their ideas. Um, in fact, we knew that there were dinners and parties in the Greek culture that would get out of control. So what started as a dinner party would, with a little too much wine, lower inhibitions, People would begin to flirt, things would get out of control, and some of those dinner parties turned into sexual orgies. Um, this now continues in our culture as we see like office Christmas parties. Sometimes there's too much alcohol and someone will have a fling or a twist with somebody in the office. And it may have been that they were trying to turn dinners within the church 
these times of fellowship within the church into these by hitting on the church members and trying to get them to engage in this. In verse 5, Jude reminds them that they already know this. So I'm, I'm like reminding you, much of Christian teaching and an awful lot of preaching is simply reminding us, reminding us what we already know, saying it again so we don't forget it. We're all in need of regular reminders. And it's important that we have them because there are 168 hours in each of our weeks. And we generally only give one of those to worship and only one or two of those to study with others, like being in a Bible study, being in a Sunday school class or a small group. And very many of those small groups or Bible study times don't come with any accountability, like calling us out for not being faithful. Um, So even if we have daily minutes of uh, quiet time, we need those reminders. Even if with that daily time, with the Bible study and the time of worship, that means the world has around 160 hours every week to pour its message into us. It becomes incredibly important that we allow God to pour God's message into us. This is why even if we're bored in worship, even if the preacher preaches the same message, it's important for us to be there to realign ourselves with the message of God. He talks about them having been saved from Egypt in verse 5. We This story comes from Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 35. The entire nation was released from slavery in Egypt, but not all of them entered the promised land. Only the faithful made it into the promised land. And of course, we know there were only two, Joshua and Caleb, the only two faithful spies on that. So he's saying grace is available to everyone. And a lot of people are going to find release from their sin and grace, but not a lot of them are actually going to learn how to live it faithfully and actually make it into living in the promised land, in the promised reign of God here in our world. Okay, in verse 6, he uses his first Jewish text, one of those non-canonical extra-biblical books. And he's gonna, when he does so, he talks about angels. This is from the book of First Enoch, which interprets Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. The angels left heaven, and they mated with human women and created the race of giants. We have them referred to in the Bible as the Nephilim. This idea is also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in in another extra-biblical book called the Book of Jubilees. Let me give you the story from 1 Enoch. In that story, God sends 200 angels to be watchers, to to guide and instruct humanity. So a little more than just guardian angels, but actually guides for people. And instead of guiding humanity, they corrupt them. They seduce the women and they create this giant race called the Nephilim. So God rejects the giants. The children of this um, unholy alliance get rejected. Um, This causes those giants to embody the worst of their angelic fathers. They become violent and coarse. We see this in... um, Goliath, 
in the Philistine giants and our attitude toward them that we see in Scripture. And the book of First Enoch actually includes this idea that the souls of these giants, of this race of giants, become the demons that haunt and tempt human beings for the rest of time. Yahweh, God, however, binds those 200 disobedient angels into a place called Tartarus. That is the deepest, darkest part of the underworld, far below Hades, which is the realm of the of the human deceased. And we see this idea reflected in Homer's story of the Iliad, um, where it is said by Zeus. Um, so whether Greek culture is influencing Hebrew culture, and that's why we have this story of First Enoch, or whether Hebrew culture is influencing the Greek or reflecting a similar theme. We can't be entirely sure, but we see it both in Hebrew ideology and Greek mythology. The book of Second Peter uses Tartarus um, as a place of condemnation for fallen angels. Here in First Enoch, Enoch is going to intercede for these rejected giants urging God to forgive them. They are creations and cannot be responsible for the way they are created. This is our argument as human beings that we are born into sin and we have to have God give us redemption to offer us salvation through Jesus Christ. We can't do anything about the way we're born, but we can choose to allow God to help us do something about it. So Enoch intercedes on behalf of the giants um, and says, please don't hold the sons responsible for what the fathers have done. And in First Enoch, God refuses. And so the giants are condemned. This also occurs in the book of Sirach. There's also a book called the Book of Giants. There were 10 copies of this book among those, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found um, in the desert in Palestine. The Book of the Giants details the creation of the Nephilim from Genesis 6 and calls those giants both warriors and cannibals. So not only are they violent and corrupt, not only are they embracing the worst, but they are despicable. They actually eat other human flesh. Um, This theology was readily accepted and important during the Second Temple Judaism period. The Second Temple, what period is Herod's Temple? This is the temple and the time in which Jesus came, lived, and ministered. So this would have been common knowledge and accepted ideology among the people at the time. There's also a story called Legend of the Watchers, which occurs in the book of First Enoch. It was written during the Maccabean period, which is the time period between the Old and New Testaments. Okay, in verse 6, there are they are chained in darkness until the judgment of that great day. This is also the ideology and imagery that we see reflected in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation imagery. This would mean that Satan, who was formerly Lucifer, who was one of the fallen angels, <clears throat> either either Lucifer Morningstar was the angel who led worship in heaven, who rebels against God for the I statements, I will ascend, I will be equal with God, and God kicks him out 
because I'm not going to wrestle with you over this. I am God and you are not. Get out. Or he was one of the 200 sent in this story. And because of his pride and hubris, he decides he'll make himself equal to God by the way he runs things here on earth. Um, but he is currently chained up. He is not free and loose on the earth as we talk about. It's only his minions, his demons, who are able to tempt us. And Revelation talks about a time when Satan will actually be unleashed from this place of darkness to have a time of rain on the earth. So right now, it is his children, those who followed him and he was able to corrupt, that tempt us. So we have a lot of this um, apocalyptic, um, what we call eschatological end time things, imagery that is background to what is written here in the book of Jude. Those who are enchained are waiting sentencing. We also also see this reflected in 2 Peter 2.4. They will eventually one day be condemned to eternal punishment in a lake of fire, which we see in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. The point here is that even the angels must have choose they have to choose to remain faithful to God just like we do. I'm going to start a second podcast to continue looking at this very short book of Jude um, that has so much background to it. Pick up with the next Jude Part 2.